0: I have a friend, Gary, who uh, lived for somewhere around a decade in Afghanistan and helped rebuild the country, which has now been um, harmed greatly again. But he talked about how in Afghanistan, people are so thrilled with the Word of God that they'll put it Even if they can't read just a little extract from the um, Koran on their cart or on something else which they want protected, figuring the Word of God is powerful. And even if we don't understand it, it can still be of use to us. In the life of uh, Joseph... He was given wisdom to understand dreams, as was Daniel. And when Daniel went before the king, he opened by saying, very similar to what Joseph said to the Pharaoh, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's not me. Look to that God. When we open, the Word of God, the actual Word of God that we have been given. We are touching heaven, we're touching the divine, and we need God to reveal these mysteries to us, to help us to understand. So, today, our text is from Exodus. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them. To afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And then in the 19th chapter, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: The first time that I um, was asked to preach as an assistant pastor with very little notice, as in 5 p.m. on a Saturday, was when we were doing a similar series at my former church, looking at the Old Testament and trying to take large chunks of it and, and distill them for gospel purposes. And it was on the Exodus. And I remember being both excited and intimidated because Exodus is an incredibly important book. Um... All the books of the Scripture teach us about God and even about ourselves as we understand how he describes himself and then describes us. But it is hard to turn the page of the entire New Testament without a reference, either as a literal event, which the Bible understands Exodus to be, but also as a metaphor for what Jesus' work accomplishes in us and for us. Throughout the Scripture, God's people flourish not exclusively but almost exclusively in terrible, even horrific circumstances because um, that is how he has allowed his glory to shine most brightly throughout the history of the world. There are many, many stories throughout the scripture of these brave and, and lovely humans And their bravery and their loveliness is most evident because they're being oppressed, and yet they continue to be faithful to God. The story of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Ruth, Nehemiah, challenging circumstances, some of them accidental, some of them through oppression. And then we have characters like the one Mike referenced, Joseph, and this is the Joseph from both the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, who both flourished at times, particularly when he was in a tough situation. And then when he rose to power is a little more confused if you've read that story. David is very similar the king. When David was in the wilderness prior to his kingship, such bravery, such clear devotion to the Lord. There's a story um, of him leading the people to recover um, women and children who had been kidnapped, and many of them can't go on, and he leads the people first in weeping and then understanding their limits, and then into battle. But when David comes into power, he makes about as many mistakes as any of us could imagine, through aggression, through passivity. We see it at the beginning of the Exodus that Israel, despite oppression and affliction, for the purposes of money and power in the hands of Pharaoh, flourishes. Early on in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has all of the firstborn males of uh, Israel murdered. And as I was studying the book and as I was considering how to preach it and how do we look at such a long and important book with with poetry and song and war and narrative and story and covenant and a type who will later become, or not later become, but, but who Jesus is described after. Moses is an intermediary. Jesus is the intermediate. There's so much in the book of Exodus for us to learn from. And yet there are troubling things in the book of Exodus also. If you've read it and your faith wasn't troubled or your mind wasn't troubled at all, I'm not at all sure you read it carefully. I was looking at the story of, and this is, this is part of the birth narrative of Moses, who's miraculously saved from the murder of the firstborn, but this is a superpower Egypt is the superpower of the time. And if that's what Pharaoh would do, not to an enemy, but to someone under complete subjugation, what then would he do to his enemies? The text of um, God's call to Moses is almost comical. I kept trying to come up with a way to, to summarize it, um, but it has too many moves. We talked about this last week a little bit. We, we can read the Bible um, too quickly or too flippantly, um, and we'll put our own emotion into it, and we'll miss God describing himself, which is key to us understanding him and then understanding our world and ourselves. In the, the flood narrative, in the Babel narrative, when Abraham and Isaac both are passive with the kings that they interact with. God never describes himself as angry. In the flood narrative, his grief washes over that text. And yet here in Exodus is the first recorded description of God's anger. They've been arguing for a while at the point where God gets angry. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. And this is about Moses' fifth request that it not be him. Anybody but me, God. He uses several different tactics. Uh, parents of children will recognize most of these tactics. Indirection, um, excuses, legitimate and illegitimate excuses. At this point, um, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm in verse 10, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, as in nothing's different, after God spoke to him directly. This was out of the bush that was behaving oddly. It was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Moses moved towards it. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. I have a question for you. As you hear that, and I hope it's the, you've read it many times or heard it many times, why was the anger of the Lord kindled? The writer of Exodus, probably Moses, doesn't record it, he simply tells us. There are all sorts of places where the Bible gives us a lot more detail than we would give. If we were writing it. And then there are a lot of times that we would like some more information. And it's not in there. And what we get to do as we wrestle as people of faith is we pray. We continue to read. We converse with people. We go back to the text. What does God think about weaknesses? and sins. I'm applying a little bit of a metaphorical touch to a story that actually happened, but it's because throughout the history of God's interaction with his people, weaknesses, in this case, slow of speech and of tongue, and sins, the reason Moses is in the wilderness is because he murdered an Egyptian earlier in the book, God looks mercifully, and he sees how our weaknesses or blind spots, real or imagined, because it turns out Moses is actually gifted in speech and in tongue, and sins, he sees both mercifully and how they will nourish our growth as his followers, Israel flourishes, and God rescues. In chapter 2, it says, verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hears his people. We looked at Genesis last week, and we see God create. And we zoom in on the creation to the crown of his creation, which is those who bear the image of God. And then people rebel in chapter 3, and then Cain murders his brother. And Cain cries out to God, and what does God do? He hears him and then he protects him. I talked briefly last week, overly briefly, about Hagar, described her as an employee, which is sort of true. She was an indentured servant or a slave, different kind of slavery than the one here, but still slavery nonetheless. She has several terrible interactions with Abraham and Sarah, and she cries out to God and actually names him and he hears her and protects her. In Revelation 7, one of the more profound pictures of this is God always remembering his people. He always hears his people. He always remembers his people. And his remembering is not like our remembering. It's not that he forgot. It's an active remembering, a moving towards. I assume you're here, especially perhaps even on a holiday weekend, because you believe that God hears his people and is moved by their cries. I believe you trust that about him. I even assume your prayer life reflects it, and I hope this encourages you this moment throughout the scriptures We are told again and again and again through narrative, poetry, prophecy, the words and teachings of Jesus, the New Testament, and the the conclusion to the Bible that God always hears his people. And very quickly, we have already touched on it, Moses doesn't believe where he believes but he's wishy-washy about it, the nation of Israel, even in the book of Exodus where they see these plagues. If you have trouble with the plagues, understand the plagues were warnings. Even as they see God as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night guiding them, they're still nervous and wishy-washy, full of legitimate and illegitimate fear. It isn't weird that Moses would say to God, Uh, this is not going to work. This is an oppressed people living amidst a superpower asking permission to leave. And yet it's God. In the interaction with Moses, God begins to reveal his personal name. That he's the God of the past and the present and the future. That he is the one who always is the very language of it is confounding because of the mystery of our finiteness attempting to grasp his infinite. Yes. And I believe, that in my opinion, the most troubling part of the book of Exodus is that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I was recently interacting with a very, very, very long email train. Very, very, very intelligent atheist is very troubled by this. It's why I brought up Pharaoh's actions in the beginning of the book. It's why last week when we look at the flood and the violence of the earth, I don't believe that our imaginations are the best or the only apologetic, but how bad would Pharaoh have to be for it to actually be merciful to Egypt, the world, and Israel, for God to harden his heart in order to glorify himself and his people and recreate the nation of Israel out of the nation of Egypt. It's a troubling passage, but what it asks of us is to trust what we know of God's heart. Each book teaches us about who he is. We read the book of Genesis, especially the beginning, but all of it, which is echoed in Exodus as God recreates his people. We know that God is a creator. And as I was thinking about this section of the sermon, I feel like most of the time that someone describes God as creator, it sounds stern, Sounds like we're focusing on his sovereignty and the fact that he's all-powerful, which is true. But Genesis wouldn't invite us to first see him in a stern way, but as a creative. When someone describes themselves as a creative, we don't think stern, and yet sometimes we get a little tripped in our theology and we miss the vibrant, brilliant creativity of God. Fun, even, in the way that he describes his creation. But Exodus teaches us that he's a rescuer. And while we may be troubled by part of the language, it's absolutely clear who God is and what God does from this book, is that he is a rescuer. I worked at a camp in the summers in college, and uh, one of the ways they trained us was with this poem that I didn't actually think was a good poem, but it had a terrific title. It was, I'd rather see a sermon and hear one any day. Good job not saying amen right now. <laughs> Although that would have been funny. When we ask, who is God, and we listen to and read and study and converse about the Exodus both the book and the event, we cannot help but notice that he is a rescuer. Which then begs the question, what did he rescue you from? Do you have an answer to that? Do you have an answer that someone who is not a person of faith would understand? The reason I ask that is not because I think you should tell them this afternoon. That depends on whether you're going to see them, depends on the level of your friendship and all that. But we can sometimes get so caught in our religious language we don't translate in a way that our hearts and minds understand
0: on a regular basis what he rescued us from. Now, again, don't want to give you the answer. I want you to consider
1: if you consider better when you're not outside and listening to someone talk Jot it down. What did he rescue me from? Answering that question, especially in a way specific to your own story, will give your mind and your heart rest. While it's absolutely clear that God is a rescuer, if we don't do the work of applying it to our own life, it's simply a fact in our head somewhere with thousands of others but if we'll do a little bit more thinking about our own story and understanding of him and us in it, there is peace and joy for us in that. Israel flourishes and God rescues, and it's for his glory. Part of the reason I left you a little bit hanging with, in my opinion, the most troubling part of the Exodus is I just wanted us to sit in the tension. But also because... um, coming around to an answer will sound um, weird. Or I wrote lots of words in my notes that now sound not great. If someone asks us, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer actually is for his glory. And that can make us sound like a monster, unless It's true that he's good and in control and knew what would happen if he did not harden Pharaoh's heart, both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians and to their neighbors. Part of that question also flows out of something relatively new. It's relatively new, to the, I believe, to the 20th and the 21st century, that there are multiple places in the world where we do not think of suffering as inevitable. A person that believes suffering is part of the human experience in life, both self-inflicted but, more importantly, oppression and injustice, has no problem with God acting this way. But in some pockets of the world, suffering can be almost entirely avoided, the exception of sickness, perhaps. And it is out of those places that that question flows. And if you say that to a person who has this question, they get very annoyed. And I believe they get annoyed because there is some truth to it, though it doesn't conclude the conversation. Israel flourishes and God rescues and it's for his glory. And we're seeing a pattern in Exodus. It already happens two times in between chapters 1 and twenty which is that God creates. He creates a people. They rebel against him. He redeems and rescues them and recreates them. And this not only recovers the people of Israel and recreates them as a mighty nation with the goal of blessing the rest of the world, but it also recovers the purpose of the creation the shattered creation and the
0: mandates that come with it. If God is indeed good
1: and sovereign and most of our doubts flow out of believing one of those and being troubled by one of them. If he's good but he's not in control then is he God and powerful if he's powerful and not good and can we trust him but if we hold both intention then we have the key to understanding troubling passages like him hardening Pharaoh's heart which is that he did it for his glory and the good of his people and the good of the world that's not the last word to say about these matters i imagine people of god will discuss these things until jesus returns because they are troubling and yet by faith study conversation with friends, imagination, thought, and then redoing all of those, we continue to rest through our tough questions and the good answers that we have to them in who he is. And who he is as a rescuer. Israel flourishes and God rescues for his glory and the life of the world. I love this phrase. I learned it from an Eastern Orthodox writer. Why does God rescue? First of all, because that's who he is. It's the same answer to why does he create. Because that's who he is. But for what purpose? What purpose does he rescue the nation of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, in some ways, it would have made the news around the world slower news cycle than ours. But people heard, if he had had the nation of Israel take over Egypt... Egypt is the superpower of the region. If I'm in charge, I'm like, that's a cool story. But that's not what he did. In part, for the life of Egypt. How many Egyptians turned to follow God after this? Perhaps more out of fear than any other reason. But he wants to take the nation of Israel to a very important geographical space at the time the highway of the world, and place them there to act as a kingdom of priests and bless the world about knowledge of the true God who is not violent towards his people, who opposes slavery, whose goodness and steadfast love is not capricious or reciprocal as the other ancient deities were known at the time. Peter quotes this in his letter. In one of the Apostle Paul's letters to Timothy, he quotes he talks about Janus and Jambres. Do you know who they are? That's the name that the Israelites eventually gave to the sorcerers of Egypt that try and oppose God. It's what Paul calls the false teachers, those who preach that the gospel is not good news or not as good a news. And then throughout the New Testament, this is the metaphor for what Jesus did in you. Why? That the life he breathed into you, nephesh in the Old Testament, Zoe in the New, you might breathe out into the world as lover of him and the neighbors that he's put into your life. And if this is who he is, if this is what he does, then the only response available to us philosophically and especially religiously is to worship
0: and then follow him. I'll ask again
1: what did he rescue you from? I hope that that's an easy answer for you. I happened to be with family this week. Family that I grew up with from about eight to 18. And, you know, traveling with family is good and challenging. It reminds me of where I came from and therefore what he rescued me from. Not them, but myself. Why? Because that's who he is. To what purpose? to breathe the life he breathed into us, into the
0: world. Would you pray with me?
1: God, we trust you and ask that you help us to trust you easily, quickly, instinctively even. Jesus, we are so thankful for the greater exodus that we receive from sin and death through faith in you. Holy Spirit, we ask that in the receiving of your sacrament, you would give us an awareness of the life that you breathed into us when you pursued us, and we received that by faith. Amen.